Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mic check, mic check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you saying? Word up. That. Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone, they give some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical All right, folks, thank you for joining us again for another edition of Theology Matters with Clues. So, a big show for you guys today. We are going to continue our series in uh, science and the Bible. And uh, today we actually have uh, two guests. We will be joined in the first hour by Professor Ken Samples. I'll tell you a little bit more about him in a second. And then uh, in our second hour, we will be joined by Jay Warner Wallace to talk about his new book, God's Crime Scene. So uh, if you've not liked us on Facebook yet, go to uh, Facebook and then just type in Theology Matters with the Palouse. And then when you go there, you'll see our past podcast. We've done shows really for the past uh, three years. And uh, we've hosted several debates on there between uh, atheists and Christian apologists, as well as uh, Roman Catholics and apologists, uh, Christian apologists. I should say Protestant, to be more correct there. But uh, be sure to go on our, on our page there and like us, and you'll find all of our all of our podcasts. So let me <clears throat> go ahead and get right into the show, because we've got a lot of information that we need to cover. And so let me, let me introduce uh, Ken Samples. And I've, I've been wanting Professor Samples on the show for a long time, and he's just a, a wonderful, wonderful thinker, and uh, it's been a real encouragement to me. So F- Professor uh, Ken Samples is a uh, philosopher. He works with Reasons to Believe Ministries. That's with uh, Hugh Ross and Fuzz Rano. Uh As we discuss, philo- uh, discuss the philosophy of science and how we can defend the faith using the tools of science, philosophy, and reason. That's kind of what we're going to be looking at today. Uh, Ken has earned a BA in social science with an emphasis in history and philosophy from Concordia University, an MA in theological studies from Talbot School of Ministries, and prior to joining Reasons to Believe in 1997, uh, Ken worked for, uh, for years as senior research consultant and correspondent editor at the Christian Research 
Institute, where he regularly co-hosted uh, the Bible Answer Man show. So you can find his articles on uh, in the CRI Journal, as well as uh, all over the the internet. <laughs> he holds memberships in uh, Evangelical Philosophical Society and ETS, as well as ISCA. So, wow, Professor Samples, it's great to have you. Well, thank you, Devin. It's a pleasure to be with you. I've always heard good things about your show, and so it's a real honor to be with you. Wonderful. I'm glad you could be with us. Um, We wanted to talk a little bit about kind of how philosophy and science interact. Um, I know kind of in today's age with uh, a lot of the new atheists, it's kind of put out there as though the only thing we can know is science and that uh, philosophy is just dead. It's useless. It can't can't do anything. So talk to us a little bit. How did you get involved in uh, studying apologetics and and getting into philosophy? Yes, very good. I was raised kind of a nominal Roman Catholic. Um, I didn't really understand the Catholic theological system very well, but our family went to Mass, you know, on important days, uh, Easter and Christmas and various other times. But uh, I was a uh, young college student and uh, went through a, a real crisis in my life. My, uh, my older brother, who was kind of in the hippie generation, became addicted to very serious drugs. And through a long process with uh, battling mental health, my brother ended up taking his life. And uh, that really turned my world upside down. It really caused me to begin asking the deep questions of life, like, why am I here? And uh, what happened to my brother? Will I ever see him again? And uh, does God exist? And so I began kind of a pattern of searching. I decided to go out and buy myself a Bible. Uh, Most of the Catholics I knew in those years didn't read a lot of the Bible, but I went out and got one and started reading it, and it transformed my life. My, My older sister who had become a Christian just a few years before, gave me a copy of C.S. Lewis's wonderful little book, Mere Christianity, and I read it and was deeply impacted by it. And uh, I went to Mass. At that point, I was still a Catholic. I went to Mass uh, every single day for about two years. Uh, You can go to Mass early in the morning, even on the weekdays. And um, it turned my world upside down. It was kind of a charismatic Catholic community at the time. Then I became acquainted with Walter Martin, and it was through Martin that uh, I really became interested in apologetics. I became interested in uh, an evangelical Protestant faith. And uh, of course, being on the campus, I would constantly talk with students and professors about faith and reason, and philosophy became a real tool because in the in the medieval Christian church, philosophy was seen as the handmaid to theology, a tool, a guide. And so uh, I, w- I just ate up all of the Christian philosophy I could get, reading Lewis, reading John Wilbert Montgomery, reading Walter Martin. And of course, they encouraged me to read St. Augustine and Pascal and various other people. So uh, philosophy became a- an interest. Uh, largely because I wanted to do apologetics and I needed to know how to reason. Wow, that's that's really 
really something. I know Walter Martin, uh, he had a big hand in our conversion as well. I had grown up in uh, Utah and, uh, of course, in a Mormon country down there. And uh, it was my uh, my father was working with a gentleman who had uh, had him read the book, The Maze of Mormonism. Wow. Actually, that, yeah. that led, uh, led the family out of Mormonism. So praise God for... For Walter Martin, and that's uh, must be a real honor to have been able to work with him. It was. It was. Uh, it was a thrill. He was. Uh, I was amazed by him. He would sit in the studio with just his Bible and answer question after question on the program. And you know, I, I think like C.S. Lewis, he probably had a photographic memory. He just seemed to be able to remember everything he read and. Wow. He was a big inspiration for me. I I loved him, and uh, I still miss him. Yeah, man. Well, let's let's talk about the um, the topic a little bit here. Um, what is the relationship, would you say, between science and faith? Like I said a little earlier, a lot of the uh, a lot of atheists will say that philosophy is just useless, and that really the only thing that matters is truth that we can discover from from science. So, what what would be the relationship there? Yeah, that's a that's a very intriguing uh, sentiment that's expressed because when you say that you can't know anything except through science and that philosophy is dead, you're really uttering a philosophical sentiment. So it's contradictory to say that philosophy is dead and then engage in philosophical uh, statements. <laughs> um, I was I was on a radio debate out of uh, Fresno and. The fellow that I was debating was a professor at, at uh, the University of Fresno there, a very academic school, very science school. And I remember when he came on, he, he said, uh, as a scientist, I have no belief. And I was just uh, chomping at the bit uh, to say something. So when I got my opportunity, I said, look, uh, as a scientist, you have all kinds of beliefs. I said, you believe that math and science are valid. You believe that that math corresponds to the nature of reality. I said, don't you believe there's a real world out there? Don't you believe that that world is to some degree intelligible? Can you trust your, your mind and your brain? I said, uh, professor, you've got lots of beliefs. So philosophy is very critical when we think about science. Uh, there's a whole, whole field called the philosophy of science. And there are a lot of critical realities, Devin, when it comes to science that really can't be affirmed by science itself. I mean, it's these assumptions we've been talking about, that the world is real, that it's, it's intelligible, that to some degree we can, we can measure it and map it through mathematics. These are all presuppositions that really came out of the Christian worldview because uh, science really emerged in the, in the, uh, in the 1600s in Europe, and uh, they, and by and large, took Christian worldview assumptions to, to to birth that process. And so, you know, when I'm on Twitter or I'm on Facebook, I'll occasionally get kind of the hit-and-run atheist who says, ah, you know, uh, religion is dead, and philosophy is dead, and science is all there is. And, and I say, well, why is it then that the Christian worldview was able to birth science, and why did it flourish under uh, a Christian worldview. So, so philosophy is a very critical enterprise, and philosophy is important not only to science, 
but it's also important to theology. And I think I think that's why Christians who are interested in apologetics really ought to be interested in philosophy. Amen. I, I think I have probably all of the books that you've you've written. And uh, what I love about your books, and it's probably the same reason I love a lot of Ronald Nash's work, was uh, you guys talk a lot about worldview. And uh, talk to us a little bit about that, about the, the worldview. And I'm guessing, kind of like with, with naturalism, how Dr. Nash would talk about you know, the, the open and the closed box, depending on your presuppositions, it's going to depend on what you think science can or or can't tell us about certain things. So maybe talk a minute about uh, what is worldview and how does Christians put this together and have a, a good coherent worldview? Sure. In, in fact, uh, Ron Nash, uh, a lot like Walter Martin, had a big influence on me. I met him a little bit later in life. I was working at, the, uh, at Reasons to Believe at the time, and we had him come and speak at some of our events. And what a what a brilliant man, what a, a careful thinker, and he shaped my thinking about worldview. And, and Devin, I think that this is, I think that this is a really critical area of apologetics. It's a critical area of Christian thinking, you know, how, you know, take that word worldview and flip it. How do we view the world? How do we, how do we think about uh, the nature of reality how do we come to know things? Uh, how do we uh, understand our ethical obligations in life? And, and of course, we have many worldviews out there. In my book, A World of Difference, I, I take Christianity and I compare and contrast it with a number of them. I mean, Islam, interesting religion, even though it's Middle Eastern, even though it is theistic, monotheistic, Interestingly enough, they like to see themselves as their own worldview, so it's, it's kind of a theistic competition to Christianity. But then you've got uh, an Eastern mystical worldview that's popular with pantheism. You've got naturalism, which of course is the, the worldview that props up atheism, that the world is, a, is simply reducible or explainable in terms of uh, the... Uh, natural processes of chemistry and uh, physics. So, so a worldview is how you make sense of reality. A, a worldview is kind of your big picture interpretation. Uh, it answers questions like, why am I here? What happens to me in death? What, are, what, are my, what should my fundamental beliefs be? And Devin, I think it's awfully important to think worldviewishly, if you will. That's kind of a Ron Nash word. I think that uh, when we look at the competing worldviews, that's when we really begin to see the problems that other uh, other systems have. Uh, you know, it's it's not just debating the existence of God. It's not just debating how we interpret the Bible. But when but when naturalism has to defend itself or pantheism has to defend itself, then we begin to see some of what you suggested some of the coherence problems that these worldviews uh, have a hard time passing the coherence test. Right. Yeah, I know uh, Doug Grotice has a really good chapter in his book on that. Quick question, uh, too, I think that, that should be brought out is this charge that uh, Christians uh, hate science, uh, etc. Um, Christians 
for a large part, were really responsible for discovering a lot of the branches uh, of science. Is that, is that correct? I know Henry Morris has written a book, uh, Men of Science, Men of God, and really, I think, does a good job demonstrating that, um, you know, Christians, uh, in large part, a lot of the scientists were really trying to, to find the mind of God and see how God had done things. And there's not this uh, tension or contradiction somehow between uh, Christians and science. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I, uh, Devin, unfortunately, there is a uh, perspective that's often put forth on the web and on radio and television and everywhere that there's somehow some kind of war between religion and science. But it's utterly false. Um, the fact of the matter is that uh, the scientific revolution of the 1600s was led by wonderfully Christian they called them in those days Christian naturalists. They, they, they loved what they called the book of nature, and they believed that that book of nature, the, the world, was also written by God. And so the book of nature and the book of Scripture, if they were properly interpreted, they would cohere together. And so many of the uh, leading scientists were devout Christians. It's true of Copernicus. Uh, it's true of Galileo, even, even with the controversy that centered around him in the Vatican, Copernicus, Galileo, very strong Christians. Pascal, uh, wonderful Christian uh, physicist, uh, mathematician. And you can go on and on and on. And in fact, uh, the founding fathers of science were almost to a man, deeply dedicated Christians. And it was uh, their attempt, Lore Nature's Mysteries, that really allowed the scientific enterprise uh, to come forth. And in fact, there have been some terrific books that have come out, uh, one by a man named Hannum that looks at uh, the nature of uh, science in the Middle Ages. And, and Devin, I mean, when I was a young guy, I was taught in school that the Middle Ages, they were the Dark Ages. It was the age of the church. There was no real learning going on. The church really stood in the way of any kind of advancement of education and learning. But almost all of that is, is wrong. The great university system of Oxford, Cambridge, and various mm -hmm. other countries, all of that began in the Middle Ages. Really, really the foundation for science was laid in the Middle Ages uh, by Christian thinkers. And so there's no historic warfare between Christianity and science. Uh, this is something that has... Uh, been set forth as fact, but it but it's anything other than fact. Yeah, I love I love how you answer that, and I think part of the issue too is not only has the secular world bought into that. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians have too. They they bought into this uh, idea that uh, faith and science are separate. Uh, I'm a chapter director with Rational Christie out at Winthrop, and you know that's the, our big job is doing apologetics. And a lot of the resistance we get is from other other Christians who think, well, you know, if you can give reasons to believe, um, what what's the point of having faith? Somehow that that giving arguments for God's existence takes away from the faith, and you know, you can't argue anybody into the kingdom. What would you say to some of those Christians who, unfortunately, sometimes uh, knowingly or unknowingly, kind of uh, walk right in and and fulfill those stereotypes? 
That's a that's a terrific point, uh, Devin. We we need our churches. We need an intellectual revival to to begin again in our churches. We need Christians that are well aware of of history and and have an appreciation for theology. I, I would say a couple things to it. I, I I would say first of all that going all the way back to the early centuries of Christianity, this is prior to to Saint Augustine in the fourth and fifth century. There was this idea of two books. Now, now again, the book of nature is not a literal book. It doesn't have spine and pages, but but it is a repository of knowledge. It's, it's, and, and that's what we learn in nature. That's what we learn from the created world of God. To use a theological term, that's the equivalent of general revelation. And then there is the, the explicit biblical text, which is a literal book. And those two books are seen to be written by the same hand of God. I, w- I would also, uh, I'd also want to talk with my brothers and sisters in Christ and tell them that historically, faith always involved knowledge and was compatible with reason. For example, to have saving faith, I have to know some facts about the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, I have to know about his, his life, his death, his resurrection. And so uh, to have faith in Jesus, to put my confident trust, the Greek word is pastuo, to believe or trust in Christ, is to have some factual knowledge about who he was and what he did. And then, of course, Christians reason that since God is a rational God, created the world in light of namos and logos, laws and logic, then made human beings in his image, and then he networked us together. And so what I like to say to my Christian friends who are at some time, and I know they have good intentions, and I know sometimes they're looking at certain passages of Scripture, what I try to encourage them is that you can love God with your entire being, and that's got to include the mind. It's got to include Mm. uh, our love of truth and reality. And so the early scientists were Christian, and they thought they were loving God, by exploring nature's mysteries. I love that. That's absolutely, absolutely awesome. For uh, you know, it really is as we said. You know, it's kind of a um, it's a time right now as, as a Christian, at least in America. You see, you know, the skepticism ramped up and that, but it really is an exciting time to be a Christian because, um, especially within the field of, of philosophy and academia, uh, would you say that Christian philosophy is really booming and theism is kind of on the rise compared to maybe what it was in, I don't know, the 20s or, or the 30s? I think that's exactly right, uh, Devin. When I, was, uh, when I was a student, a lot of my Christian philosophy professors had been educated, you know, in, in, the, in the 50s and the 60s, and there were very few Christian philosophers in those times. But now, in the American Philosophical Association, which is kind of uh, where you get your union card as an American philosopher, the largest subset of the American Philosophical Association is the Society of Christian Philosophers. And right. what, what, is, what is unique is that not only you take someone like an Alvin Plantica, Plantica is not only considered um, you know, uh, a well-known Christian thinker, but he's also known as one of the most brilliant uh, philosophers alive today in the world. And so there has been a a real growth 
in Christian philosophy. Uh, William Lane Craig has written about this in Christianity Today, about the numbers of, of Christians going into academic philosophy, uh, people working in such fields as the philosophy of religion or the philosophy of science. And so we're, we're living at a time, and, and Devin, I take this as a real encouragement. I meet so many bright, reflective, well-studied, dedicated Christian intellectuals that I think, wow, that's an encouragement to me that all of these people affirm the truth that I affirm. They, they see the reason and the rationality in the world. They see the hand of God. And, and uh, so we are living at a, we're, we're living at a, a, a renaissance when it comes to uh, Christians becoming uh, interested in, in academic studies and uh, really looking at, looking at those studies through the lens of their Christian theology. Yeah, the, the number to call, folks, if you would like to call and talk with Professor Samples is 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907, Christian or non-Christian, we'd uh, love, to, love to hear from you. I was thinking, you know, it's probably the 30s, 40s, or 50s, there probably was not a whole lot of works really available, um, or at least current works, I guess, dealing with apologetics. I'm thinking, I know you have uh, Henry Morris's The Genesis Flood that comes out like in 1961, but there really wasn't a whole lot of work until, what, the the 70s with Dr. Geisler and some of that. But now, um, you know, as we're talking about this kind of the boom in apologetics, there's so much available now as to where, maybe 50, 60 years ago, not, not quite as much. Absolutely. And if you think about, uh, you know, if you think about somebody like, like Dr. Norman Geisler, you think about a John Warwick Montgomery, uh, you think about uh, Ronald Nash, not only have these men written remarkable books, and I have almost all of them in my library and have been the beneficiary of, of the, the real careful thought of these men, you know, Devin, these men have fired up so many students. So many people have gone on to take graduate degrees and doctoral degrees uh, to, to develop apologetic ministries. Uh, apologetics, not just Christian philosophy, but apologetics is booming. I teach as an adjunct instructor in the graduate program at Biola in apologetics, and Craig Hazen tells me that uh, the numbers have grown significantly over the last uh, 10 or 15 years. Wow, it's it is an exciting time to to be a Christian for sure. Well, so as we're we're talking to our friends, maybe we're at work or um, you know out in the mall, whatever it is, and we run into uh, some some people that would say philosophy is it's dead, it's useless. There's no need for it. Um, science is the only way. I know you kind of touched on that a little bit. Um, what are what are some things? I remember a discussion between Peter Atkins and uh, Dr. William Lane Craig on this, and he was basically challenging him to name something that we couldn't know through science. And then, of course, you know, Dr. Craig said about five different things. Uh, but what are some of the things that scientists really presuppose when they're doing uh, their work in the lab, and some ways that philosophy kind of fills the gap? Then we can talk about maybe some of the arguments for God's existence. Sure. I, you know, working with a number of scientists, uh, reasons to believe, uh, what I appreciate, Devin, is that many scientists 
and I think because they have so much extensive uh, uh, education devoted to particular areas, maybe chemistry or physics or uh, biology, whatever it may be, that they have very little uh, background in philosophy. And so oftentimes they kind of assume the truth of the laws of physics that, you know, they're, they're not well aware of asking the question, why should we, you know, if there's no God and the human brain has evolved through purely natural processes, then why should the equations in the mind of somebody like uh, Albert Einstein actually correspond to the nature of reality? I mean, Devin, I remember being a senior at Concordia University and my uh, counselor said, uh, Ken, you need to take a, a hard science to graduate. And I thought, well, they're all hard to, hard for me, but I took a physics course. And during that course, I began to realize, wow, physicists really look at the world through the prism of mathematics. And the, and the question just popped out in my head. And I thought about it for, for months and even years later. Why does math work? Why is it that mathematics can correspond to the nature of reality? That makes that makes so much sense from a theistic point of view that there's a great right. mathematician that God is, God thinks mathematically that He created the world in light of mathematics. But if uh, skepticism is true, if atheism is true, if materialism is true, uh, they have a world of of struggle trying to explain why conceptual realities like math and logic, where they came from, why they work. And uh, so what's interesting, I think, Devin, is that a lot of scientists, though they're very well educated in their specific disciplines, they kind of take for granted the assumptions of science. They don't ask right. why does math work. They just, they just, well, of course math works. They, they don't ask questions about uh, why is the world intelligible. I mean, I mean, think about it. If the world came... If there's no mind behind the world, if there's no God, why why is it that we live in a universe where humans have minds and brains where we can actually trace the intelligibility of the universe? I mean, I mean that should be utterly shocking. So, uh, what I often do with my colleagues and friends at Reasons to Believe, and they will tell you this to a man, Fazrana, Jeff Swearing, Hugh Ross, that. You know, they uh, they were trained to kind of take uh, the assumptions of science. They didn't feel a need to those or investigate those. But all of those, all of those assumptions that there's a real world out there, that math and science can be trusted, that the world is intelligible, that our that our mind and our sensory organs correspond to reality. Devin, none of those things can be proven by science. Those are all philosophical and, I would add, religious assumptions. Wow. I think that is, that is, it really is powerful because we're showing that in order to even argue against the existence of God, you're really having to kind of borrow from the theistic worldview, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. There is an expression, and I, I think it's, it's, uh, it has a lot of credibility behind it, and that is that the modern scientific enterprise that is very powerful, that has uh, extended the, the quality of life for human beings, that has led to many good things in the world, 
that really it's living on borrowed capital. Uh, it was a different worldview that birthed science. It was Christian theism, and and science came out of of Christian theological assumptions. I like to ask the question, and I think it's a fair question. If if naturalism had been the leading worldview at the time in the 1600s, would science have ever really emerged? And this is where this is where Yaki, uh, 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 the Catholic philosopher and <clears throat> physicist, who's written in the field, he says that that science was stillborn in various parts of the world. That is, that is, even though China and uh, Greece and Rome and and even Baghdad made contributions to math and science, it was never able to get science off the ground. And Yaki argues that it's because they didn't have the the basic worldview foundations uh, to wow. anchor those kinds of things. I, I think that that is a very powerful thing. So when Stephen Hawking or Richard Dawkins says philosophy is dead, they're not even aware that they're uttering philosophical statements. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Let's do this. We'll go ahead and we'll take a break, folks. Uh, we've got uh, Professor Samples with us for the next 30 minutes, and then we'll have uh, Jay Warner Wallace with us to talk about his new book, God's Crime Scene. Uh, we're going to go ahead and again open up the phone line, 760-542-3907. Call to get on, and we'll put you right through with Professor Samples. We'll come back, and we will continue looking at the relationship between philosophy and science. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. Apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. It's no secret that philosophy has been given a bad rap by some in Christian circles. Why do you think that's the case? Well, bad philosophy needs a bad rap. Uh, And a lot of Christians, that's all they know. Colossians 2.8 says, beware of philosophy. Actually, there's a definite article of the in Greek. It's talking about particular bad philosophy was kind of incipient Gnosticism that existed there. Christians have nothing to fear from a good philosophy. In fact, we need good philosophy to answer the bad philosophy, as C.S. Lewis said. So I think Christians need to get into philosophy because God commanded it, because uh, the world uh, demands it, and because the results confirm it. Uh, I can tell you any number of people who have been trained in philosophy and apologetics who have had great ministries and winning people to Christ who would not otherwise have been won to Christ. I have a whole file full of people who said I was an agnostic, I was an atheist, I read your book, uh, I appreciated the reasoning that was in it, and I've come to know uh, Christ and I want to thank you for uh, writing that book. So the uh, proof of the pudding is in the uh, eating. It has good results, uh, good philosophy has good results. You can't know error without studying truth, but you can't answer error without studying philosophy because you wouldn't go to a doctor who didn't study sickness. If you went to a doctor who said, what's wrong with that? He said, I got a pain in my apostat near my zorch or wherever you get pains. And he said, uh, what would you like to know about health? He said, look, doctor, I'm, I'm dying. I got a pain. I don't want to know about health. I want to know, can you cure this sickness I've got? So you can know the truth, but if you don't know error, you don't know how to apply the truth to the error and when the people were in error.
Here's a Renewing Your Mind Minute with Dr. R.C. Sproul. The situation at the time of the flood was a situation of pure moral relativism where everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It sounds like a description that was written in yesterday's newspaper. And when God destroyed all of that, the descendants of Noah come up with an idea to do exactly the same thing. They're going to build their own city, a city that will endure. And the crowning achievement of that city will be the tower that reaches up to heaven. The tower of Babel. For today's special offer, visit RenewingYourMind.org. All right, welcome back. And we have Professor Ken Samples with us. And uh, Professor, I was going to say, it might have been, I think it was less than a year ago, uh, there was a big series that came out with Neil deGrasse Tyson called Cosmos. And I have a clip of that. Uh, actually, no, it's not that. It's actually uh, Tyson kind of talking about ID, and he's he's mocking it a little bit. And I just wanted to get kind of your your view with this. Um, I, I don't think, again, uh, philosophy got a very uh, fair trial in that series, uh, in that, uh, series of Cosmos. And uh, just wanted to play a real quick clip and then let you respond. Is that okay? Sure. Uh, I want to do it just a fast tirade on stupid design. And uh, this will be fast. Uh, look at all the things that just want to kill us, okay? Uh, most planet orbits are unstable. Uh, star formation is completely inefficient. Most places in the universe will kill life instantly. Instantly. The people that say, oh, the forces of nature are just right for life. Excuse me. <laughs> just look at the volume of the universe where you can't live. You will die instantly. That is not, that's, not, that's not what I call the Garden of Eden, all right? Uh, uh, galaxy orbits, that we orbit once every couple hundred million years, you're bound to come close to a supernova that will wipe out your ozone layer and kill everybody on the surface who doesn't otherwise have dark skin because your high-energy rays will give you skin cancer. Um, we're on a collision course with the Andromeda galaxy. Gone is this beautiful spiral that we have. And, of course, we're on a one-way expanding universe as we wind down to oblivion, as the temperature of the universe asymptotically pro approaches absolute zero. That's the universe. Then Earth, volcanoes, tsunami just killed, uh, you know, I think that number's higher, up 200,000 people, floods, tornadoes. None of this is any sign that there's a benevolent anything out there. And this 90%, it should be 99%, as was earlier noted, that's a... Um, of all life that has ever lived is now extinct. Intersolar system is a shooting gallery, comets, uh, uh, asteroids, duck, um, and look how long it's... Okay. Just curious, so when we're engaging in apologetics, especially scientific apologetics, how can philosophy help us to kind of navigate uh, through some of the objections that, uh, I mean, those are pretty typical objections given often. Yeah, well, I think that uh, one that jumps out right away is uh, the question of, you know, the problem of pain and suffering and evil. Uh, maybe you could pitch it in light of uh, Degrassi Tyson's comments. You know, why is there, uh, you know, why is there so much disorder in the universe? Why, why is it that uh, the ho the universe at times doesn't appear to be 
hospitable to us? Well, those are those are again philosophical questions. Those are those are questions about uh, they're the big why questions. And what what I think is interesting is that uh, the Cosmos series, of course, was modeled uh, after a series that came out in the '60s and '70s by Carl Sagan of the same name, uh, Cosmos, which of course is a New Testament Greek word uh, with roughly the equivalent of the of the idea of the universe. Well, what's interesting, uh, Devin, is that, uh, and this is where I, I wish uh, uh, Degrassi Tyson had had admitted this: that uh, actually there are a lot of natural disasters. You know, you look at you look at uh, earthquakes, you, you look at hurricanes. Uh, these are actually processes that actually make the Earth uh, a place that that is livable. Uh, uh, a lot of the things that that happen certainly they appear hurtful and uh, they can be devastating to human life. But uh, life wouldn't be possible here on planet Earth without earthquakes, without what we see as as natural disasters. And uh, he's kind of uh, really cherry picking a lot of the data there. What he should mention, however, is that there are critical parts within our galaxy that have enormous fine-tuning to allow for the appearance and the emergence and the life of complex life. In fact, the analogy that's often used, it's like a, it's like a board where people are turning dials to allow for just right universe. He's correct that there are many places in the universe that human beings can't live. That's why it's so amazing that planet Earth is so remarkably hospitable to life and these are these are, again i think are are both scientific and philosophical and theological questions and unfortunately degrassi tyson doesn't see, he seems rather impatient with both philosophy and theology yeah and i think just when when you're doing things like you're looking at the fine tuning uh, of the universe and that it's it's issues that uh I think a lot of times when I'm thinking of like Stephen Hawking with his with the new book uh, The Grand Design, and he just goes back and forth from science to philosophy, and so, and he just I don't even think they necessarily realize they're doing it, and then at the same time blasting uh, philosophy while he's you know consistently engaging in it. So it's uh, yeah, yeah you know I'll, I'll tell you a, I'll tell you a very interesting uh, true story. Uh, we have a friend, uh, uh, through reasons to believe, uh, a leading cosmologist named Don Page. And Don Page studied with Stephen Hawking. In fact, Don Page is a committed evangelical Christian. They used to have Bible studies in Stephen Hawking's living room. Uh, Hawking's first wife was a Christian. And uh, it's been really kind of a slow process where, unfortunately, Hawking has kind of moved away. It, at one point, he was willing to consider a, a creator, a designer. He tended to think it would be more deistic than theistic, but it was only really uh, later that he became very disenchanted with theology and philosophy. And then I think began saying, you know, you know, I mean, it's it's certainly true, Devin. It's hard to know everything. It's hard to be an expert in any field, let alone every field. But just, to be, you know, I'm not a scientist, so I try to be very careful. I try to listen carefully to good scientists and 
I, you know, I seek their their aid when I'm trying to say something uh, about the nature of science. Well, I think we need to turn it over and we need to say it's certainly true that Stephen Hawking is one of the most brilliant uh, astrophysicists in the world. But there are times where he says rather silly things about the nature of philosophy. And uh, that's, you know, that's where the community of science and the community of philosophy and the community of Christian apologetics, that's where we need to correct people and call on people. Um, Hawking has done a lot of great work, but there are there certainly is the case that we're all in the the biggest room in the world, and that's the room for improvement, and that includes even brilliant people like Stephen Hawking. Wow, that's good. Yep, absolutely. Let's let's look at some, maybe some of the other um, disciplines such as science. When when we're doing apologetics. Um, for example, I know we, we can draw on a lot of the scientific uh, evidence. For example, when we're looking at the Kalam, we can look at the you know the evidence that the universe began to exist, etc. Um, kind of maybe walk us through that argument and just show us how science and philosophy both interact, uh, even in that argument. Yeah, it's very good, uh, Devin. What's very interesting if you do a little study in the history of science, you realize that. You realize that in the 19th century, in the early part of the 20th century, the basic view held by the scientific community is that probably the universe was eternal, that uh, this idea of a steady state universe, that, that the universe kind of was on an equal keel where it was, it used up energy, but it produced energy, and so the universe was, was eternal. Uh, when Einstein came along, um, he preferred, and m many skeptical people preferred, a universe that just had always been there. And the, the, the question of why is, is very simple. Uh, people realize that if a universe had a beginning, then you have to ask a series of questions. Uh, and even Stephen Hawking has said that, that the idea of the universe having a beginning uh, raises questions about about a creator and and about why why it's here at all. And so, the the word kalam is actually a very interesting word. It's an Arabic word, and the kalam argument was set forth uh, even in the the Middle Ages by Islamic scholars, and then later by Christian scholars. But the kalam argument is part of the cosmological argument. It is one version of the cosmological argument. And to put it as simply as possible, uh, you have two premises followed by the conclusion. The premises provide the support. The conclusion makes the claim. So the first premise is that anything that begins must have had a cause. The second premise is the universe began. Therefore, the conclusion is the universe you know, had a beginning. Anything that begins has a cause. The universe began. Therefore, the universe as a cause. Now, what's interesting in supporting those premises, uh, you can appeal both to philosophical assertions and to scientific data. And obviously, uh, I know there are Christians that are a little suspicious about the Big Bang. And of course, there are old earth creationists and there are young earth creationists, and there are a lot of debate about these questions. But what I think is interesting, Devin, 
is that for many people in the middle of the 20th century, the idea of a Big Bang, that is the idea of a singular beginning, the idea that the universe actually had a beginning from nothing, the people that were really bothered by that were people who were atheists because right. they realized the philosophical implications. Uh, and of course, if it is in fact true that you know something can't come from literal nothing, and if it's true that there are, are good data that the universe had a singular beginning, then you're appealing both to logic and philosophy and science, you know, to support this argument that the the universe needs an explanation. We we have to we if it had a beginning, then we have a right to ask, well, where did it come from? And I remember the I remember the very first time I ever read the cosmological argument. I I think actually it was the argument from contingency. So there are there are different versions of the cosmological argument, but I remember reading it, I, I, and I'm thinking it might have been presented by Peter Christ at the time, uh, a Catholic philosopher, but I remember reading it, and I remember being stunned by it. I was just, I was just really struck deep in my being that, wow, the universe needs an explanation. And wow. uh, this is where I think these arguments, and Again, we can talk about the design argument. We can talk about the moral argument. We can get wax even a little more philosophical and talk about the ontological argument. But again, th this is that this is that whole school of philosophy of uh, where we're we're interested in in questions of of reason and rationality, faith and reason, and. Uh, I think, uh, for me, and I, I, I'll bet the same is true for you, my, my faith has never led me to become anti-intellectual. My faith has always driven me further to learn and to want to think and to want to reason and to ask, well, where does logic come from and how is my mind capable of it? And so my Christianity has always really enriched me uh, in learning. It's always been a great source for, for growing and, and encouragement. And, and that's what I'd like to share with a, a lot of Christians who are maybe a little suspicious about philosophy or science or higher education. You know, they may think, if I study that stuff, I'll lose my faith. But uh, the reality is, if you don't have some knowledge of it, your faith is inevitably going to be questioned. That's right. I, you know, I recently just watched a, uh, a video with Kathy. Kathy Lee Gifford, Gifford was giving a, a really sweet memorial to her husband, Frank, who had just died. And she was saying how she just saw kind of a transformation in him as he grew in his faith. And one of the, one of the quotes she said that just really struck me was, um, as, as his view of God got uh, bigger, his, his world got smaller. Wow. As his view of God got bigger, his world got smaller. I think it's it's the same thing. I know as I started going to you know out of Southern Evangelical Seminary and learning about the attributes of God and learning there really were reasons to believe and really good uh, arguments to defend the faith. My view of God really just exploded, and uh, my love for God really just grew. So philosophy can really be a really good tool to also help us grow deeper in the faith, wouldn't you say? And, and I think that's, uh, Devin, I, maybe that's a very good way of coming at it, that, 
that are the life of the mind, the life of philosophy, the life of reflection is really just an extension of our overall love for God. We, we want to give him everything we've got, and we realize our mind is a special part of us, and we want to use that special quality uh, to love God. And, and I'm right with you. The, the more I've learned about God's power and God's knowledge and, and, and God's presence, these, these traditional attributes, the more it's helped me during my time of difficulty. Um, you know, about 11 or 12 years ago, I had a, I had a life-threatening illness there was I was really touch and go whether I was going to live. And I remember late at night in the hospital all alone, you know, just digging deep and thinking carefully about what I believed and why I believed it. And uh, so, wow. you know, these things, they really pay dividends in our daily life. They do. In 2011, you know, I came down with the swine flu and my lungs wow. had just filled with pneumonia and I, and that, I mean, that's, that's partly why I'm disabled now was, was that whole episode, but it was to the point to where I could not breathe and, uh, wow. they, they were going to have to do something. And so if they were wheeling me back they, to intubate me, basically when they stick the tube, uh, in your throat to, to get some air, I remember thinking there, you know, I may not wake up. And I remember literally running these arguments of the, the Kalam and the, and the, uh, argument for the resurrection and the reliability of the Bible, really running those through my head thinking, you know, do I know that when I wake up, I know that I'll, I'll, I'll be with Christ? Do I know that I'll, I'll be okay? And so a lot of times we're accused of uh, apologetics and just for eggheads and academics, but when my life was on the line, that is what I clung to. That is really, or that, that's what helped me cling to Jesus, I should say. You and I have a lot in common. I, I I can distinctly remember being in the hospital, just reviewing evidence in my mind for the resurrection and thinking, um, if I die, what's going to happen to me? And uh, my faith, you know, I I had six brain lesions, and so thinking wasn't terribly easy for me, but I was working hard to think through my faith and to recall all the things that I had learned and and the things I had taught over many years about Christian truth claims. Wow. I remember when I, when I woke up, I had had a, a terrible, terrible uh, temperature. The temperature was over 105 degrees when I went wow. in. They thought I was going to have brain damage. I was on cooling blankets and everything. And as I started, I was, I was in a coma for almost 30 days, like 28, oh, 29 days. And so when I came out, you know, it took a while to kind of adjust, but I remember uh, Melissa, she was my wife, she was asking me things like, uh, what is aseity? What is divine simplicity? What is impassibility? I asked her these questions <laughs> to see if I had brain damage or not. I was thinking, you know, I don't know if I can answer these things when I, you know, if I was perfectly fine. So. <laughs> uh, that's funny. That's, that's a great story. I love that. Yeah, you got to love our wives, right? Well, that's, that's good our, stuff. They're our, uh, our helpmates, yeah. <laughs> yes, they really are. Maybe take a few minutes as we're closing here. One of the objections, of course, comes of uh, faith and and um, reason. How do you do you see faith and reason interacting, and is there uh, a tension that you see in that? Well, I, I certainly think that uh, there are always challenges. I mean, 
Christianity involves a lot of mystery. Virtually everything we know about God involves mystery. The Trinity, the Incarnation, uh, the Atonement. I mean, we're dealing with a God that uh, is infinite and eternal, and, you know, we're finite and temporal. And so uh, there are going to be times in which uh, we have to strain and struggle. Uh, But, of course, we also have a revelatory faith where God is revealing these truths. And what I like to do is, again, go back to uh, the idea that uh, the basic words in the New Testament for faith, uh, the Greek word, pistuo, to believe, and then the noun, pistis, to have faith, the core of those words is trust. And uh, I like what some of the early Christians, I like what Augustine would often say, that that uh, faith is confident trust in a reliable and reasonable source. And that's a very powerful way. Uh, faith is not just blind trust. It's not trust in just anything or anybody, but but it's right. trust in a reliable and a re- reasonable source. And, and God shows himself to be reasonable and reliable. Uh, we have a historical faith where uh, Jesus uh, existed in time and space, was born under, you know, the, the reign of Caesar Augustus and, and died under Pontius Pilate. And so we have a historical faith. We have an eyewitness uh, faith to Christ's resurrection. I like to emphasize that it's true. Faith, we have a reasonable faith. It's still faith. There are still times we have to exercise a confidence, even when we don't have complete understanding of everything, but it is a reasonable faith. And so faith involves knowledge, uh, and it is compatible with reason. The the Trinity and the Incarnation can't be fully and totally comprehended by the human mind, but there are ways of talking about them that uh, keep them out of the realm of contradiction. And so uh, I believe that the, the Christian faith doesn't do any damage to reason. Uh, mm. It can't be totally, you know, you can never own it, but uh, it doesn't do any damage to it. And here I'm thinking about great thinkers like Augustine, like Anselm, like Thomas Aquinas, all the way down to some brilliant thinkers uh, in our time who show us how faith and reason uh, are uniquely compatible, and it's the lack of faith that creates so much problems when it comes to reason and rationality and logical coherence. That's very good. I, I so appreciate you coming on the show. It's been a really uh, good time, and uh, boy, you, you really help us take some of these big issues and put them on the bottom shelf so uh, even a guy like me can understand it. Where can we where can we find some of your your stuff at uh, Professor Samples? Where can people get a hold of you at? Sure, um, I, I've written a number of books and articles, and uh, a lot of them are available at Reasons.org. Uh, certainly, uh, a lot of my books are also on Amazon.com. But there are a lot of articles uh, at Reasons.org that are free. You can download. Um, and there's lots of just uh, free apologetic articles in theology and philosophy, and so that would be a good place, I think, for people to go and maybe get some some articles and not have to pay for them. And, and I want to say, Devin, it was wonderful meeting you 
a number of months ago at the SES conference, and I've heard good things about this program, and now that I've done it, I've really, really enjoy it. And I want to encourage you and your wife in your ministry, and you know, keep it up. And, uh, you know, apologetics has to be done by a community, and you're an important part of that Christian apologetic community. Wow. Well, that means that means an awful lot to me. I really look up to you. I love your books. And, you know, I'm one of those weird anomalies. I'm a young earth creationist, die hard. But, boy, I point everybody to uh, to Ken Samples, and I love the work that uh, Reasons to Believe does. And I really appreciate you coming on and just uh, sharing your, your expertise and your knowledge with us. Well, we're, we're brothers, and, uh, you know, we... Uh, we have we have a love for each other. We we can love each other and respect each other, even if we differ with each other on various areas. And I think that's an important lesson for lots of Christians to learn. So thanks a lot, Devin. Amen. Thank you, and uh, we'll love to have you come back on at another time. I'd love to do it. All righty. God bless. God bless. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to be back with Jay Warner Wallace. We're going to be looking at his book, God's Crime Scene. And I'll tell you, I've been going over that all day, and it is just a phenomenal, phenomenal book. So be sure to uh, stay with us. Uh, Phone lines are open, 760-542-3907. If you're in the city, you probably don't get to see many stars in the night. But if you're camping, live out in the country, or on a ship at sea, you can see hundreds or even thousands of them. From down here, stars pretty much look the same. But the Bible says that God made each one unique, like our sun. Did you know that our sun is over a million times bigger than the Earth? That's pretty big. But other stars are larger, like Betelgeuse, which is about a thousand times the size of the sun. And like stars, each galaxy is uniquely designed. Astronomers estimate that there are more than 170 billion galaxies in the observable universe, and they all come in different shapes. Our Milky Way, for instance, is a barred spiral galaxy. And while other barred spirals are out there, none of them are quite the same. And that's just one more thing we can be thankful for as we look at the big and beautiful night sky that God made for us. All right, folks, and we are back, and uh, as Professor Samples, the show will be, uh, of course, podcasted, so you can uh, come on and find the show there. Again, if you've not liked us on Facebook, you can go to Facebook and look up Theology Matters with the Palouse, and you'll find all of our old podcasts. So, uh, kind of continuing on with the theme of science in the Bible, uh, this second hour we are going to be joined by the apologist and author, J. Warner Wallace, and we're going to look at his book, God's Crime Scene. Now, Mr. Wallace is a cold case homicide detective. You may have seen him on uh, Dateline or some other show shows. Uh, he's an adjunct professor of apologetics at Biola and uh, is a former atheist. Uh, he eventually earned a master's degree in theological studies from Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary and has served as a youth pastor for several years, then planted a church in 2006. And he has two books now that he has published, Cold Case Christianity, and his newest uh, his newest book is God's Crime Scene. So, Jay, Jay Warner Wallace, are you there? Is it okay if I call you Jim? Of course it is. Yeah, I'm here. I'm good to be with you guys. 
Yeah, that's great to great to have you. We've been looking forward to doing this show for for a long time, and uh, really love your new book. Was able to go through it uh, this afternoon with a little fine tooth comb, and man, it is it is really good stuff. Well, I'm glad it's helpful. You know, we're all, all trying to do the same stuff. We, we're looking at the same kinds of evidences. Of course, you know, in the last oh, couple of generations, we've had uh, access to some scientific evidence maybe we didn't have, you know, a couple hundred years ago. But for the most part, we're, you know, a lot of us are writing today about similar topics. And so when you're, if you're going to do that, you have to find a way to write uh, kind of from your own experience in your own lane and in a way that you hope will reach, uh, you know, the community that you're uniquely gifted to reach, and so that's what we're trying to do with this book. How did you How did you get interested in apologetics? I know you you did not grow up in a Christian home. Is that correct? Yeah, and that's how I got involved. I, it was just the the pathway that, that God used to reach me. Um, so you often hear people say, "Well, you know, you don't know anybody who's really." been evangelized through an apologetics process, but I mean, there's lots of people who have actually, and I'm one of those people. I'm one of those people who, um, you know, uh, needed some convincing, needed to have some of those barriers kind of removed, some of the shrubs removed uh, so I could hear the gospel. And uh, so for me, I, I was already a committed, uh, I was I was working in investigations as a detective. I was uh, assigned to a surveillance team and uh, this is, you know, my whole approach. My, it was always going to be evidential. I, I had a certain skill set in place, doing a lot of interviews of suspects and looking at a lot of crime scenes, trying to figure out what happened. And and so I just used those same those same skills, that same uh, tool set, to uh, to look at the case for Christianity, both in, in terms of determining if the reliability of the New Testament was sound, and also in trying to figure out if there was a good reason to believe that, you know, to trust that God actually existed. So that's kind of what I'm chronicling in these books. It's really just my own journey. When you when you first started kind of getting into this, were you uh, just looking at the evidence for the resurrection, or were you also getting into some of the kind of like the philosophical and scientific uh, aspects as well? Well, and I, I came to it kind of backward. I mean, most people, you know, you, you kind of hear both of us have a friend, Frank Turek, who's written a great book called Out of Faith to Be an Atheist, and if you kind of see how he steps through that process. He starts with truth, then he goes through God's existence, then he looks at scripture and Jesus. And so you kind of build this case from the ground up. That's not how I actually did it. For me, I uh, stepped foot in a church, you know, I was 35 years old and and uh, went to church really for the first time in our neighborhood. We had lived there about three years. and My wife was more interested than I was really, but I was willing to go. But the, the pastor there was really skillful in terms of how he 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 definitely knew he had an atheist in his audience, and so he just pitched Jesus as this wise, ancient sage. He said a lot more about Jesus, but that was the only part that I was interested in. And so uh-huh. I, I started looking at the Gospels just to see if the wisdom words of Jesus were worth kind of thinking about. And uh, that kind of, I really, you know, I start, as soon as I started reading through the Scripture, the New Testament, I realized, wow, this is, had a lot of the attributes that I was familiar with working cold cases, familiar with working, uh, you know, murders and, and uh, any event which you have more than one witness that, uh, you know, it tells you something about a, a, an event. You know, there's some certain attributes that pop up. And I saw these in the Gospels. And although I, you know, I still rejected the supernatural, though, so I would have at the end of this process, I really got to a place where I said, wow, there's a lot in these Gospels that I would commend in terms of the reliability issues. But they include supernatural events. And that was something that I would have said, well, you know, that 
has to be fiction. So this is kind of a, a form of historical fiction then. And that's really where I sat. And the next step for me then was to really look at, well, why do I think that there, you know, I need to kind of test my philosophical naturalism a bit. Because what bothered me was, was the, the supernatural elements, you know, the, the miracles that you're walking on water, feeding 5,000, all of that stuff. So I said, okay, I need to really kind of test that. And that's what you see in the second book. So the first book is kind of what got me to the point of actually beginning to question my philosophical naturalism. The second book is that adventure kind of looking at the uh, universe as a crime scene and, you know, how how would some of the skill sets that we would have as detectives, how could we employ those skill sets to look at some of this evidence? And that's that's what the second book, uh, God's Crime Scene, is all about. Yeah, we had we said uh, Professor uh, Ken Samples on, and one of the things he's really good at in his books is talking about worldviews and kind of some of the presuppositions and, and that people can have when dealing, just kind of looking at the evidence. They may presume right off the beginning God doesn't exist, and he does a good job with worldviews. And <laughs> oh, excuse me. One of the things I notice here, and uh, you have on page nineteen talks about the opening statement. Has someone else been in the room? Kind of talk about that for, for a, a minute or so, and, and what is that exactly are you getting at there? Well, this is the whole premise of the book, right? I mean, everyone comes to these issues differently. And so for me, uh, coming out as an atheist who was a detective, I had a different approach, and I'm trying to share that a little bit in the book. So, so when we get dispatched to a, to a dead body, uh, to a death scene, these are called DBRs, dead body reports. And so officers get dispatched to these all the time, but not every dead body is a murder uh, because you can die four different ways. You can die either to natural causes, by way of accident, you can commit suicide, or you can be murdered. So the question really is, which of these four is the, is the case in any death scene? And how we determine that is a kind of a simple game that we play uh, of inside or outside the room. We simply ask the question, can we... Um, can we account for everything? Can we explain everything we see inside the room by staying inside the room? If we can, then it's not going to be a murder. It's more likely going to be something like an accident or a natural or a, or a suicide. So we'll give you an example. If we walk in a room, we have a deceased a person who's got a gunshot wound, and uh, there's a pistol laying next to him, but the pistol belongs to him. It's got his fingerprints on it. All the doors are locked up. There's no evidence of an intruder. All the DNA and fingerprints in the room come back to him. Well, we can explain everything we see in the room by staying in the room. And if that's the case, it's not going to be a, a, there's no intruder. There's no murder here. It's probably a accidental or suicide. On the other hand, if the pistol is not his and the DNA and the fingerprints on the gun don't belong to him, and I've even got, you know, uh, bloody footprints leading out of the room, well, now I've got things in the room that really can't be explained. They didn't start off in the room. They haven't been in the room all along. These are things that I have to explain by going outside the room for an explanation. And, and that's really the trick. Once you have to go outside the room to explain something you see inside the room, you've got to really consider the possibility of a murder. And so what we're doing with the universe is we're simply asking the question, um, can we explain everything inside the room of the natural universe by staying inside the room? I think there are eight things that everyone has to explain. And uh, those eight things, if they could be explained from inside the room, well, then naturalism and some form of, you know, just using the stuff of the universe, all space, time, and matter, and the laws of physics, the laws of chemistry, those will be sufficient. And then we don't have to you know, look for an intruder. On the other hand, if we have to go outside the room for an explanation, 
Well, that's going to start us thinking that if the best explanation for the stuff in the universe is something outside the universe, that really starts you on a whole different journey, and that's the journey I try to chronicle in uh, God's Crime Scene. Yeah, you know what I, what I think I love about the analogy is it puts both systems in a burden of proof, right? Because a lot of times people right. just assume uh, atheism, and I think you know all worldviews have a burden of, of proof here. And on page right. 24, you, you list four things. You talk about uh, cosmological, biological, mental, and uh, moral evidence. And whether you're a, a naturalist or, you know, whatever, a Mormon, whatever it is, uh, we all, all worldviews have to kind of give an account uh, for some of those things. So I, I like how you, uh, you don't just let the kind of the presumption of atheism, so to speak, go unquestioned. The, the, both sides have a have a uh, burden of proof. That's right. When it, all, when it comes down to it, you know, it, you can argue, well, if, you, if you're just pointing to, if you're trying to offer that God exists, well, then you, some people will say the burden of proof is on us to try to, uh, you know, make a case for this thing that nobody sees. But the reality, of course, is we're not, really, really the burden of proof shifts toward those pieces of evidence we do see. You know, we've got to explain evidence in a crime scene. And, and that's, the, that's the burden. And, and so everyone has a burden to do that. And, and this is true for anyone holding any worldview. All of us see these eight things. We know we're in a universe that has a beginning. We know we're in a universe that has the appearance of fine-tuning. We know that life originated from non-life in this universe. We know that life even displays the appearance of design. Richard Dawkins would admit to that. And then you know we've got, uh, we, have, we experience consciousness. We experience free agency in this universe. We also recognize there are transcendent objective moral truths and obligations. And there's uh, this persistent problem of evil that we have to explain. These are eight things that we, everyone has to account for. And every worldview has to kind of give you an answer for, for why these things exist, what their role is, how they're interconnected. So it's not, so it's, it, it, you're absolutely right. The, the importance of this approach is that it does put the burden of proof on everyone. And it, and it just kind of removes that kind of silly uh, assertion that, uh, you know, only theists, because again, what we're trying to, you don't jump out and, and start describing suspects. You, you have to account for evidence in the crime scene. If the evidence in the crime scene doesn't incline you to even start looking for a suspect, then you don't have to even do anything. You know, if it's a suicide and you've got enough evidence in the room, you can explain that it's a suicide. Well, then you're done. You go home that night. You're not working that case. Right. There's no case to work. So this is why I say that the burden really is in explaining evidence in a scene before anything else. Now, kind of in the, the day and age we live at in America, the uh, atheists, a lot of them will claim that, uh, well, you're deluded if you believe that uh, God has created the universe or God exists or really has anything to do at all. I wanted to play the short clip by Richard Dawkins. He's talking about uh, a new video that is coming out based on his book, The God Delusion, and then I just would love to get uh, some of your reaction to that. Is that okay? Sure. Sounds good. Of all the issues human society faces today, religion remains one of the most divisive and destructive. I hope you find this film on it interesting. There are lots of people who have been brought up in some religion or other, are unhappy in it, don't believe it, or are worried about the evils that are done in its name. 
There are people who feel vague yearnings to leave their parents' religion and wish they could, but just don't realize that leaving is an option. I've written a book called The God Delusion, aimed at those people. The book inspired a short documentary series for Channel 4 on the dangers of religion called Root of All Evil. Now we've made a single film called The God Delusion from that series. The film explores a world increasingly polarized by religion, with the atrocities of 9-11 and 7-7 still raw memories. In America's Midwest and in Israel, it became apparent how prone otherwise sane people are to extremism once they indulge in faith, belief without evidence, when they give up reason. All right, so just what's your, what's your thoughts on that? I think he's right. In one sense, you do have a lot of Christians that are brought up in the church and they're not ever taught to question or they're really encouraged not to question a lot of times. Uh, and then you, you know better than most people how when they go to college, what happens. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is the position I held as an atheist for a lot of years. I would have absolutely agreed with Dawkins in this assertion. Uh, what he really says is something at the very end that is perhaps the most powerful and important thing. It's this idea that uh, Christians believe something for which they have no supporting evidence. This blind idea of faith. And you have the abandoned reason to believe something. And I would have said as an atheist, here's the problem with that. If you're going to make critical decisions about metaphysical claims, without um, basing those decisions on any evidence. Well, then uh, that's the kind of person, I don't want that person running for office because he's likely to make uh, decisions about what war we should jump into without supporting evidence, what, what social policies should be enacted without supporting evidence. If you're just in the habit of making critical decisions without supporting evidence, man, that's a dangerous way to live. But of course, that assumes something about the nature of Christian faith, which I think the church has exacerbated in some sense, because we, I mean, as I travel around the country, I, I think there are a lot of Christians who do hold to what they believe without ever having examined it evidentially, which we'll get to that in a second. But, so I think that there's, there is some truth in this, that he's seeing something, but that is not the classic definition of faith as offered in scripture. You know, Jesus was a really committed evidentialist. And when I say that, a lot of my friends who are more presuppositional in their approach kind of get offended. But I'll just, you know, it's just reading scripture. If you see how he acted, there was, I mean, why even do anything in in way of a miracle that you call a sign? What do you need to do signs for when you can easily, if you're God, just change everyone's mind in a minute? Instead, Jesus was constantly saying things like, hey, if you don't believe what I'm telling you, at least believe the miracles that I have worked in front of you, the evidence of these miracles I worked in front of you. And he spends 40 days with the disciples in Acts 1, giving them many convincing, additional convincing proofs after the resurrection. When John the Baptist has doubts and he comes to Jesus, or he sends his disciples to Jesus, rather, because he's in custody, and they say, hey, Jesus, uh, John sent us, and he wants to know, are you the one? There's a lot of things that Jesus could have said to those disciples to tell John. He could have said, hey, if you really need this kind of evidence or you need some more explanation or you need something to prove this, you don't have real faith. He could have said, hey, go tell John to pray about it. Go tell John to more earnestly seek God on this issue. No, instead, Jesus works miracles in front of the disciples, and he says, go back and tell John what you just uh, saw. And, and that, to me, is the kind of classic view of, of Christian faith. It's not this blind trust in spite of the evidence, turn off your mind, just jump in with both feet, 
It is a reasonable trust given the evidence I've given you because remember, every worldview held by anyone on the planet is held with less than perfect evidence. No one has mm -hmm. every piece of evidence they might like or they might be able to get at some point to make a decision about their worldview. This is true for atheists as well as for Christians. Instead, we have to ask ourselves, do we have enough evidence that points in this direction to trust that this is true? Christians, when we do that, we call that acting in faith or stepping out in faith, but it's not a blind faith. We've been pointed in this direction. We've been walked to the edge of this, this step by all the evidence that's been given to us by God, but through all the Gospels, through the evidence in our Romans 1, through all the evidence in nature. And then we're asked to make a step knowing that everyone makes a step. As an atheist, I couldn't tell you, I couldn't answer those eight questions about what I've talked about in God's crime scene. I couldn't tell you how the universe came into being or why there's the appearance of fine-tuning or how life came from non-life or why it appears to be designed or why we have conscious minds that can have their freedom to make choices or how I can ground objective moral truths or even account for evil when there's no objective standard of good by which to measure something as objectively evil. I couldn't give you any of that. Yet I held my position as an atheist. So don't think for a second that, that everyone holding other positions, other worldviews don't hold them in very much the same way that we hold ours. Now we call this trust or faith, but they wouldn't necessarily want to use that word because it's been so ingrained in the kind of religious traditions of, of the world. I get that. But trust me, all of us believe in something for which we have less than perfect information, less than complete information. We just close the gap one way or the other. And I, it's time for us as Christians to, to say, hey, we got to take an approach so that when someone says to me, if you're going to argue that I, I hold this view because I was raised in the church and I was afraid to leave, that's kind of what he says in the video. No, that's not my story. Uh, but do I hold this view because I just want this to be? That's not my story. I hold this view because I was at the evidence set, and I was compelled that this was the best inference from evidence, and that's right. why I'm a Christian. So the question, of course, is now, now look, here's the, here's the dilemma. A lot of us who are, who are devout, saved Christians hold to a view which is true, but we really don't know why it's true evidentially. There's lots of nuts and bolts that surprise us even when people show us, here's the evidence for what you believe is true, and people are like, wow, I had no idea. That it was this well supported? Yeah, well, that's the right. problem. If if you're surprised to find that your your worldview is well supported, you're really just holding the worldview accidentally, and that's the difference. We have to we have to move people from accidental Christianity to intentional Christianity, and that's the kind of sweeping move we have to make if we want to have an impact on our culture and be able to respond to folks like Dawkins, who are observing something. It's kind of a red herring, you know. They kind of pull this thing out as a straw man that's easy to knock down. I get that. But the reality is we don't want to give the Richard Dawkins of the world any more straw men. Yeah, and, you know, maybe 60 years ago or so in America, um, the, those type of questions didn't seem to come up a whole lot. Uh, but now, where you live in this, this age of scientism, where unless it can be demonstrated through science, uh, then you shouldn't believe it. Uh, it's just one of those things where you have to know how to how to think through some of these uh bigger issues, but um, in chapter one of the book, you've got the, the whole chapter there on the, in the beginning, and you go over some of the, some of the evidence for that. What's, what's some of the evidence for the beginning of the universe? I know you have uh, philosophical and some of the scientific evidence as well. 
what I try to do in this book is to help uh, people who you know, aren't, aren't familiar with the kind of basic arguments of Christian apologetics to kind of see them in a, in not just a simple form, but in a, you know, a kind of a medium form that's accessible. And I kind of point to some of the, to some of the sources for this information, but I want to take you up a little level. So if you're kind of loosely familiar with this or not familiar, I want to make you raise the bar. If you're somebody though, who already has access to this, I want to show you a little detail here and there that might make this case even more persuasive. So when I look at evidence in each chapter, one of the things I try to do is to, to teach, you know, to kind of show the cumulative nature of each case. Devin, if I was working you as a suspect and I had a, a witness who said, I saw Devin at the murder scene. Okay, that'd be great. I got a case built on one piece of direct evidence, the eyewitness testimony of a witness. Great. Now, on the other hand, if I had a case that's built on that eyewitness testimony plus one more witness, plus I've got your fingerprints and DNA at the scene, plus you made statements to me which kind of implicate you, and plus people saw you behaving oddly before and after the actual crime, and I've got some physical evidence left at the scene that you left there. Wow, this is different. Now I've got a case built on many different forms of evidence that are unrelated to one another. And the more pieces of evidence that are in different forms or different categories that point to you as a suspect, the better the inference is, the better the case is. So what I want us to try to do as Christian case makers is to realize the power of cumulative cases, especially when they're built from many different kinds and forms of evidence. So if for those who might you know, try to still argue that the universe we live in did not have a beginning, they've really got to kind of push against several forms six really different forms of evidence that I kind of outlined in the book that come from very different scientific and philosophical realms. They all just happen to point to the same conclusion. So the fact that we have six, you know, it's actually more than this, but I just kind of isolated these six, and they come from six different categories of evidence ought to give us really good confidence that in fact we have, uh, we're in a universe that has a beginning. And here's the problem with that, of course, is that we know from that kind of basic principle of causality that whatever has a beginning must have a cause. And if we're in a universe that has a beginning, you've got to explain what would cause it. And, and this is the thing I think right away. Remember, this book is about looking for explanations inside or outside the room. This first piece of evidence, the room itself, is the problem. It starts us right away in the very first chapter. We've got to step outside the room for an explanation of how the room gets here. Because even the, the committed atheists who are looking for alternatives through some set of multiverse, kind of a multiverse generator or a quantum environment from which the multiverse, you know, and multiverse emerges, whatever explanation they're looking for, it ends up being, guess what, a cause outside the natural realm of the universe. And this cause is eternal, incredibly powerful, and it really needs by definition to be non-spatial, non-atemporal, and and non-material, but the point is, it already you, the first step, you've already had to concede that the best explanation for the cause of the universe is outside the universe to begin with. So you see what the problem is here, is that as you look at each one of these pieces of evidence in the book, you'll see that the best explanations are outside the room. And better yet, as you examine them, you'll see that the explanations begin to shape out and give you a suspect profile given the kinds of evidence we're looking at. And by the time you're done, you end up with a first cause that looks a lot more like Yahweh than it looks like the multiverse generator. That's the problem. Yeah, I, I love that. When we're looking at the beginning of the universe, because that was something that was, uh, I know a lot of scientists did not 
particularly like uh, because of the implications of that. But what are some of the things we can derive about the cause? Because a lot of times a skeptic is going to say, uh, okay, so it had a cause, it doesn't mean it's God. What are some of the attributes that we can derive from the fact that a spaceless, timeless, and material universe came into existence? Well, I, I try to take a very modest approach in the book. And I know, you know, we're Christian apologists, so we definitely get, you know, kind of seen as, hey, we're homers, we're we're homing for this, you know, for the the home team here is Christianity, so we're always kind of beating that drum. And I, I get that, but the reality is, I I, I I I let a lot of people read and vet this book, each chapter of this book, before I finally published it. And, you know, some of the folks who were Christian casemakers were almost like, wow, you know, it's kind of understated. You know, you can make a, you can be, you could kind of bang this drum even a little harder. And I said, yeah, you could, but I'm very modest about what I think each piece of evidence tells me about any given suspect. So this first piece of evidence, you know, I you could argue for a few more characteristics of what it might tell me about that first cause. But what I really think it is, it's limited. It, it tells me that that first cause is Really, now, now someone like Lawrence Krauss, who wants to argue that, that this quantum environment could somehow produce the universe, well, of course, he wants to steal all the attributes of the universe and borrow them and put them in his first cause. So the first cause ends up being very much a spatial, temporal, material environment in which space, time, and matter is supposed to originate. It doesn't really work. But if you stay with the traditional notions of what nothing is, okay, by definition, you are stuck with something that is non-spatial, atemporal, and non-material, and incredibly powerful. You have this eternal force. That's as far as I will go with that first piece of evidence. Now, but remember, when you're building a cumulative case, we're going to look at eight pieces of evidence. When I walk into a crime scene, every piece of evidence has to be accounted for. Now, if I'm not going to argue that one person did this murder and not eight, and I've got eight pieces of evidence in the room, well, then that, those eight pieces of evidence point to the same murderer. So I've got to see how this one murderer accounts for all the evidence in the room. And this is what has to happen here. So in other words, whatever gives you the beginning of the universe, I'm going to argue later, has to also be the source for transcendent personal moral obligations. It also has to be the source for consciousness. So the, the multiverse generator might, you know, in some stretch of the imagination, give you the universe as a first cause, but it can't give you the other things we're talking about that are also in the crime scene. And as it turns out, as you kind of shape those other things out and add them to the suspect profile, you're stuck with not just a first cause of spatial, non-spatial, non-material, atemporal. This is also a personal mind possessing free agency who is the person, the, the transcendent person to whom we are obligated is the standard for all good by which we measure evil. I mean, you got a lot. This, this suspect has to do a lot of heavy lifting in this crime scene. And the only kind yeah. of person who can do that is, is a personal God. Yeah, I, I love the cumulative case. I think that it's, just, it's very powerful. It's, as you say, there's several things uh, that it accounts for. So a lot of our, lot of our presuppositional friends don't uh, care for the cumulative case, but Man, I think it's I think it's really it's powerful when you put all the evidence and everything that goes really into a worldview and see how it uh, comes out compared to other systems. So well, even look, and even look at it in terms of tactically. Look at it just in terms of how we tactically approach any case. If I if I have a case that I build on one piece, um, you know, one uh, testimony of one witness, all the defense has to do is discredit that one witness, and this case falls apart. 
So I never want to build a case that way. You know, I'm going to build a case of a thousand paper cuts. You know, if that's how you know, this is death by a thousand paper cuts. So this is this is how we build cases, and and that's what that's why we want to have it's just a better strength, a stronger position for us to be in, to build a case if you're going to build it that way. It's much it's much harder to defeat a case like that too. So so that's just the approach I take. Give me an example of that. And in, in the fourth chapter of this book, we're going to look at the appearance of design in biology, right? Something that's often examined and lots of people examine it um, and have offered bits and pieces that seem to kind of start to answer the question. So for example, uh, William Dembski will say that, hey, it's the insufficiency of natural forces and, and the high improbability of, of chance that leaves you with no, you know, no better explanation than the design. Okay, that's great. Uh, Fuzz Rana in his recent book uh, really argues that the even stronger, um, he says, is kind of pattern recognition. You know, if you've got something that resembles an object we know is designed, why would we deny design in the second object? Um, and then you've got people like Michael Behe who says, well, you know, really it's about irreducible complexity. When you see that irreducible complexity in an object, you know it has to be designed. Well, I think those are all true. And the best hmm. case you're going to make is going to involve all of those. It's a cumulative case. So what I offer in the, in the chapter is a cumulative case built on a, an acronym called DESIGNED that is eight, um, eight different attributes that we see in an object. And when we see those eight attributes, the first thing we think of is it's, it's a designed object. And we do it so effortlessly, and it's the strength of – and here's the great thing about it. We know that an object is designed even when it only possesses – five or six of these eight attributes. So I offer examples, you know, the eight attributes basically are, you know, about the high improbability of chance, about that pattern recognition, about a certain level of sophistication and intricacy, about an informational dependency, about goal direction and natural inexplicability. It can't be explained by natural laws, about irreducible complexity, and finally about the uh, evidence of choice or, or decision-making. These are the things that we see in design objects, okay, eight things. But if I was to apply that template to a bird's nest in a tree, we all know that bird's nest, as finely as it's constructed, if you ever looked at a bird's nest, the inside twigs are always very fine and soft compared to the outside twigs. Clearly, this has been designed to hold something fragile by an intelligent designer, the birds. So the question is, no one would assume this has evolved naturally in the tree or the wind blew it into place. You know it's a done. So no one's going to ever challenge the design um, qualities or the design nature of a of a of a, a nest a bird's nest but guess what right when you look at the bird's nest under this template i'm offering there's only like five or six of the attributes oh. are present so my point is you don't need all of it to be certain of design and then you start applying this template to say the bacteria bacterial flagellum or other uh kind of iconic um, ID kind of, uh, uh, of objects that have been you know, kind of talked about in the last 15 years, and you realize, wow, okay, now I see six, seven, eight characteristics of design in these um, um, micro-machines in biology, and that's what's so hard. It's just really hard to deny design when it's built on a cumulative case, and I think that's the strength of the hope of the book is that in each chapter I kind of try to show you how to build that case in these different categories. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. I mean, you're not you're not looking for one magic bullet or one argument to do the whole thing. It's it's uh it's cumulative and I think it really does take into account the the data that we're we're having to deal with. Chapter okay. chapter that's 2, right. you have the uh tampering with the with the the evidence of 
fine tuning. So talk to us a little bit. Sometimes uh, I think people think when we say that the universe is fine tuned, that somehow this is controversial. Uh, but it's it's really not, is it? I mean, both atheists and theists agree that it's fine tuned. I guess the question is, um, how did it get there? But explain a little bit about what is the fine tuning of the universe. Yeah, I mean, I've worked cases before. I, I opera. Every one of these chapters starts with a real case that I've worked where we had to employ a certain tool set, and then we talk about how that tool set, if you turn a corner, could be applied to something in the universe. So I do this in every chapter. And in this chapter, I did the same thing where we're talking about a uh, the appearance. I, I had a case one time where a woman was killed by her husband who basically did it by sabotaging the heating system so that the natural gas basically asphyxiated her. So the pilot, he, he dampened the pilot. He turned the gas back on when it had been off for several months and closed up the windows. And so you saw as you approached the house several layers of tampering, of involvement, that you could either write off as coincidence, uh, just a very unfortunate, unlucky, you know, situation, or you right. saw, wait a minute, this is, this is kind of, so the foundational problems with their marriage, those were still in the background there. The fact that the gas had been turned off for months and then all of a sudden, you know, a week before she ends up dead, uh, he inexplicably turns it back on. It was in the summer months. Why do you turn the gas on in the summer? You know, it's just, that kind of stuff was just really hard to explain. And then when you get to the house, the next regional layer you move in one layer, and that that ring has other problems. You know, certain uh, doors that were uh, were closed, uh, a window that was painted in the open was always jammed in the open position. They used to leave it open. We were living in Southern California. Um, you know, it was closed and kind of locked down. And then you had in the actual room itself, that's where the pilot light was put out, and the clothes were pushed up against the door, so you wouldn't have any of the gas to escape. Well, look, you could ignore all these and just say, "Wow, what a bad set of coincidences." Or as you move in from the foundational layer to the regional layer to what I call the locational layer where you're right up against where the body is, those layers all showed signs of tampering. And that's why we thought the most reasonable inference was, hey, somebody did this. Some, this is not an accident. This is not a coincidence. And the same thing happens in the universe. You have these foundational, um, uh, the, the laws of physics, the laws of the, the, the nature of the weak and strong forces uh, all these forces and of gravity and electromagnetism, all these forces are incredibly fine-tuned. And where just a small, incredibly small variation would create a universe that would not even probably even exist at all, let alone support life as we know it. But that's just at the foundational level. As you move in a little tighter, the galaxies are shaped in a certain way. Our solar system is shaped in a certain way. And the odds of... of the small movements, the small differences in shape of both the galaxy of our planet in terms of its size, its rotation, its distance from the sun, its, its uh, atmosphere ratio, its atmosphere depth, its, its tectonic plate depth. I mean, there's just dozens and dozens, hundreds of, of elements that have to be and attributes that have to be fine-tuned. And then finally you get down you know, to the planet itself and life on the planet itself. Here's the problem. As you look at these layers of fine tuning, everyone recognizes this is really pretty. It's it's, and most physicists will tell you those laws of physics could have been different. Even if you believe in the multiverse, for example, you believe in other universes that have different physics properties. So it's not as though this is this is something that is really hard to explain, and and most people I think kind of run to multiverse theories. If you ask me, 
based primarily on the fact that, that that really would offer an explanation. If I've got an infinite number of universes that are created in a multiverse generator of some sort, then don't be surprised if one of them actually happens to have the attributes necessary to support our kinds of life, right? So that's one way to kind of overcome the incredible, incredibly long odds, the incredible unlikely nature of our universe being the way it actually is, right? So this is something we have to explain. And, and I think there's a couple of ways that people try to explain it by staying in the room. But the best explanations, and even the, the most atheists who are studying this, really do want to jump outside the room to, to kind of offer the, the multiverse as an explanation because they think, hey, at least that gets us a number, of, a large number of universes that one might pop out like this. But that, again, concedes you're going outside the room for an explanation. And, and Devin, you know all the explanations that are inside the room really are not satisfying. And not satisfying, not just from my perspective, even the people who are studying this problem, they don't agree with each other about the, 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 the kind of value of the explanations from inside the room. So I think as you look at this, again, you've got now a second piece of evidence that points to a better explanation outside the room than inside the room. Yeah, I think uh, one of the issues is, uh, and this is what, again, it's so powerful about the cumulative case, if you go to the origin of the universe, um, or even just, just that basic Coulomb argument, even if you end up with somehow this um, generator that is producing multiverses, it really doesn't explain anything because it doesn't explain where that came from, right? It's still just yeah, kind of exactly. pushing the problem elsewhere. Well, and sometimes people will, look, every one of us, you know, sometimes you hear that question, well, if God is the cause of this, who caused God, who created God? If God created this, who created God? Of course, two problems with that. All of us, regardless of worldview, who, who recognize we're now in a universe that has a beginning, are trying to identify the eternal, uncaused first cause of this universe that has a beginning. This is true for the atheist who offers it's an eternal quantum environment. They also want, they're looking for something that's eternal that doesn't have to be caused. Otherwise, they're the same infinite regress problems that all of our, everybody else would have. So it's not that we're the only ones who are offering an eternal first cause. And the only real difference between our eternal first cause and their eternal first cause is that ours is personal, theirs is an impersonal series of forces or one force, whatever it may be. So really the personhood of that first eternal cause is really what's at stake here. And as it turns out, I just don't think, and some of the other things we talk about in evidence, you know, in terms of consciousness and free agency, choices, be able to make free choices, these are really attributes of personhood better than they are attributes of physics. So we really have to kind of look at that and say, which is the better explanation, right? So, so I think that the efforts to stay in the room for fine-tuning are almost always the same every time you hear it. Either they're going to argue that fine-tuning really isn't required in order to get life, but every time they make that argument, and there's a few people who have done this, um, it really suffers because what they would define as life, you and I would not accept as life. I mean, if you're going to redefine life in such a way that it doesn't even resemble anything we see in the universe, well, then you can make the claim that you don't need these kinds of physics. But to get the kind of carbon-based life that has the ability to think about the crime scene at all to begin with, you have to have these kinds of physical constructs in place. You're not going to be able to get away from that. The other thing people will say sometimes is maybe it's just a matter of chance. But that really ignores the, the, the incredible, and that's why I think most atheists 
recognize that chance alone is just not sufficient. And that's what like Anthony Flew and other kind of committed atheists first start thinking about how in the world are we overcoming this chance. At the biological level, we're overcoming it with, with DNA. DNA instructions overcome the, the long odds against it. Well, that's the kind of problem that we're all dealing with. Where does DNA come from? So this is the kind of stuff. And again, I don't think we're making a case for uh, theism on the basis of ignorance. It's not just that we say, hey, you know, we can't right. explain this before God. That's not right. it at all. That, that there's, there is no explanation that's going to get you mind from physics. Or gonna get, and the most committed atheists will at least say, okay, I agree, mind is illusory, and so is free agency. You know, we're really in a deterministic physical universe. Try living in that universe. Why should I believe you if you're making that claim, if we're in that kind of a universe, if I'm not making a free choice to believe you in the first place anyway? You're not even making a free choice to make that argument if that's the kind of universe we live in. So Frank Turk and I often say that one of the most compelling pieces of evidence, one of the most compelling arguments for the existence of God is just the fact that we can make an argument. And that is very true because that that, that requires a universe in which we have that freedom and consciousness that I just don't think the the atheism can give us. Yeah, they really don't have a ground for that. Uh, real quick, before we get to chapter three, just kind of finishing up with the with the uh, fine tuning. I remember watching uh, Dr. Craig debate uh, Frank Zindler, and Zindler was a biologist, of course, and was really pressing Craig uh, on this issue of evolution, as though somehow if if biological evolution were true, that would somehow disprove the existence of God. And um, you know, up front, I am not a theistic evolutionist or anything like that, but uh, the argument that Craig gave was basically, uh, if biological evolution were true, and he didn't he didn't say he believed that, but if it were true, it would actually be an argument for God's existence because of the improbability of the fine tuning uh, of the universe for life to even be habitable. So I think it's important that, especially you know, maybe parents of kids know that um, when they're being told that evolution disproves the existence of God. Uh, there's there's a lot of other steps that have to come before, you know, where do we come from? Fine-tuning of the universe. These things, before biological evolution is even on the table. So would you would you agree with that as far as the fine-tuning of the universe um, and uh, whether or not that would constitute an argument for God's existence, just having life here at all? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is part of this cumulative case, right? Now, I, I'm like you. I'm not a theistic evolutionist. And one part right. of the problem I have with this evolutionary process is that I don't think it's supported evidentially. I mean, if in the end, what we right. see happening in the kind of progressive, systematic creation over time is driven by DNA, is driven by the information in DNA, well, then you don't you have something that's not being driven by the things that typically are seen as the foundational forces in evolutionary theory, right? Which is random mutations occurring at DNA replication, right? Random mutations occurring over time, guided by nothing more than than, uh, the kind of buffers of natural selection or the natural environment in which they occur. Well, there's no intelligent guidance in that kind of a process. There's no intelligent guidance in that kind of a theory. Now, I would agree that there there are small changes that occur over time. I might even agree with that. But if I'm going to agree with that, I've got to look at the best evidence I have, which tells me that I've got a chicken and egg problem. And we talk about this in chapter three, right? This chicken and egg problem of how do I get the most, the simplest biological uh, forms of life to appear when you know that life is really constructed from proteins 
that come together to form the building blocks that the Legos of all biological life forms are just proteins. Proteins come from amino acids that are, that are actually assembled in certain shapes, in certain forms. Now, the problem, of course, is that the machinery necessary, ribosomes, to, to create proteins is itself built with protein. You have a chicken and an egg problem in so many levels of biology. They really cannot be overcome. You have to have something in place that even if, for example, you need the kind of um, the cellular wall, right, to hold, to protect the processes which are actually occurring to, to create life. But that wall is itself created by the same things that are, being, are happening on the inside. You can't even get the elements needed to create the, the protection to create the elements because they're, they're, they're actually created with the elements. And that's the problem you have over and over again is you have this chicken and egg problem. And worse yet, we, have, we now know that that, that that is actually overcome with instructions from DNA, which can make all of this happen at once. And the problem you have is if that truly is information, we know that the best explanation for information is always going to be intelligence. It always has been. You can't find a single example. Now, you might offer, well, I can get some form of information, but that DNA is the highest level of information in that it communicates something with the expectation it's going to get done. And I try to offer this template that um, I did, certainly did not invent. I'm just doing the research through this, but different definitions of information have been important over the years. And there are certain definitions that help us to see where does DNA fall? What kind of information is DNA? Is it just low-level information? Werner Gitt is a kind of an IT specialist and a German engineer who's done a great job on this. So I yep. think that, that, that forces of, of physics can give you what's called statistics, the, the lowest level of the repeated patterns, or of uh, complex, uh, random, uh, um, uh, hard-to-repeat sequences, that's, that's fine. But that's a very low level of information. When you get, he gives you statistics, then cosyntics, then semantics, then pragmatics, then alphabetics. He's got five levels of information. Well, DNA really isn't that alphabetic level of information because it's, 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 it's able to get the words right. It's able to communicate in sentences that actually uh, dictate the formation of molecular machines in proper sequences. And it dictates this, it asks this with the expectation that it's going to be met inside the biological organism. So this is the highest level of information. And the problem you have, as he points out, is that it's really hard to find an example of this in physics because information requires you and I as intelligent informers to make choices between word selection, choices between letters, choices. There's an incumbent selection process when you design information, when you write information. You select what to say, what not to say when you write on a piece of paper. The same thing is happening here. And how we, we account for this and just no, no set of natural forces could ever give you that kind of interactive selection process in forming information. And that's the problem you have. Yeah, I know Dr. Fuzzron, I, uh, I'd say both of his books, um, The Cell's Design, incredible book on that, folks, if you're wanting to learn yeah. more about that. Yeah. But he also wrote a book, uh, Creating Life in the Lab, and really goes through yeah. showing so many of the problems uh, with the naturalistic account of how life uh, was formed. So quick question for you, uh, or Jim. How would you, ex how would you uh, answer when the objection given... Uh, well, what if what if scientists create life in the lab someday? Then will that uh, disprove the existence of God? How do you respond to those type of objections? 
Well, I think that, that I wouldn't be surprised at all if at some point we could, could create light in a lab. I mean, that's the real, the real obstacle, the real if in order to, to demonstrate the, the sufficiency of naturalism, we're going to have to do this in a, in a setting that actually mimics, that is, it actually replicates the, the naturalistic environment in which we are suggesting life comes to be. So if we are going to protect this and micromanage the process and protect every stage of the process, See, that's the problem. This is what, why we, we know, in fact, that naturalism doesn't work because every uh, effort to create life in the lab just demonstrates the necessity of intelligent designers who can protect, create, tweak, respond to problems, do all the things that, that, that intelligent designers do in order to protect this process. But that's not what happens in, in, in the reality of wherever this occurred. And by the way, that's another good question that people always – detectives ask these, these simple questions. What, when, where, how, where? These are important questions to ask. We all know those, those, those W questions. But the biggest one – well, one of the biggest ones, I think, is the where question when it comes to the origin of life. Because, yeah, you're suggesting we could create life where? In the lab. Well, no kidding. The labs are very, you know, kind of sterile, protected environment filled with, you know, laboratory uh, scientists who can actually guide the process. What we're saying, though, is if naturalism is true, well, where does this occur? And they have offered every, they've looked in the, they've offered the ocean as a, a place where life could originate. They've offered uh, clay and land shelves as a place where life could originate. They've offered the atmosphere as a place where life could originate. They've offered sea vents and under the tectonic plates as a place where life could originate. They've even offered outer space as a place where life could originate. And guess what? None of those work. And all the people who offer one of those five locations disagrees with the other four because they don't think it happened there. And what pushes you off into one of the other four areas is because the first one doesn't work. And that's the problem. There's no where. And, there, and again, this is simple. It, it, uh, the origin of life studies, I don't think, have advanced much at all since they've started in terms of giving us realistic, reasonable solutions to where and how life originates. So you have where problems, you have how problems with the with the with the uh, um, uh, the chicken and the egg problem, right? And all of these problems are really problems because nobody in this entire investigation wants to do what all of us at crime scenes eventually have to do. You stand at a crime scene, you don't just stop with the, the what and the how and the where and the when. At some point, you've got to move to who because you know you've got good evidence that I can actually explain all of this if there's a who. Now, that's the thing you have here. We've got all these important questions unanswerable unless, of course, we insert a who. And that's the problem that naturalism doesn't ever want. There's no who in that naturalism. And, and that's, that's why these are insufficient explanations. There is a who, of course, in, from our perspective, who could overcome all the long odds, could actually shape and guide this process, and could explain what otherwise right now is completely inexplicable. That's right, absolutely. And I think another thing to point out, too, is the fact that um, as we're gaining more information, as the science is getting better, what we're really seeing is how pathetic a lot of the uh, especially the origin of life scenarios have been, as well as the view of uh, information in the cell. It seems to me it's not a, not a god of the gaps at all. It's because the science is getting so much better and what we're learning is so much more better, it just seems to really be burying uh, a lot of those uh, things like the origin of life, for example. 
Well, and think about this. I mean, this is this is at some point you could walk into a crime scene. You could say, you know, I'm not sure that there's really any crime here at all. I'm just looking for what happened. It's a what. Or maybe they he walked into something in the back. It's a when issue. Or maybe it's a how. His heart failed. It's an issue. So it, there's, uh, there's times when there's no murder involved because there's no who involved. It's just a what, a how, or a when. Okay, but at some point in a crime scene, we actually have good evidence. It can't be explained by the and if we, if, for example, if I had a note at the scene where someone's taking uh, responsibility for this, I know right away, I got a who issue here. Well, we have a note at the scene that explains how this happened. It's called DNA. So we ought to know that this is a who issue and not a what, a how, or a when issue. Jim, can I know it's uh, I'm rushing here on time. A minute and a half. Can you talk a little bit about the experience of consciousness here in uh, that chapter? Yeah, I think chapter, if we're in a physical universe, then you know we can explain brains in a physical universe because all we have is space, time, and matter, and the stuff that governs that, which is physics and chemistry. That you can get brains in a physical universe. So the question is, how do we get minds? Because minds, I offer in the book five ways that minds are different than brains. You can't argue that, well, there's, there are no minds. It's just your brain. We have a brain, but you don't have a mind. Really? Well, I'll give you five ways we know we have something more than a brain. But I can't really get into all that in a little bit of time, but I can tell you this. Physicalism, materialism can give you the brain, but it can't give you the, in, the non-material mind. We all have an experience of mind. But this is called the problem of mind by naturalistic philosophers for a reason. It's called the problem of mind because it's a problem to explain under naturalism. And, and it's not a problem for us to explain. If there's a divine mind that creates in its image. Now, of course, you might say, well, wait a minute. Well, how does that happen? How can that, that's a silly explanation. How would that be? Well, well, so be careful here because we don't want to say, well, look, we're offering that there's something outside the natural realm. And if that's the case, well, you can't look for natural mechanisms by which to explain how this extra, supra, supernatural being uh, moves and, and breathes and acts and creates. So, of course, we're, we're offering this. But here's the problem. You simply can't get, and a lot of at least honest atheists will tell you that they don't think we have. It's an illusion that you don't have the kind of free agency you think you have. And you don't right. have the kind of conscious life you think you have. That's a high price to pay that's, number one, not supported by the evidence, and number two, is really driven by your naturalistic worldview rather than anything else. And if you've got to pay that kind of price to hold on to a worldview, I mean, it takes all arguing off the table. It takes all examination of the issue off the table because you can't examine anything if you can't freely think about it and make choices about reasonable alternatives. You can't think about anything. So it's a really yeah. high price to pay, I think, in order to kind of bite the bullet and say, yeah, there's no God, there's no universe that's anything more than space, time, or matter. Yeah, it'd, it'd uh, be the death of ethics and uh, holding people accountable for, for things as well. It's just uh, that's a scary, scary worldview. So definitely uh, love love having you on the show. What an incredible book. I was, yeah, as, as I was going proponent of uh, Dr. Turek's I Don't Have Enough Faith. We we really promote that on the campus with Ratio Christie, but this is another one, folks. I, I cannot recommend this book highly enough, and I know we're going to be doing it probably next year with our with our Ratio Christie students, so the Ratio Christie chapter directors out there, get your hands on this book. 
And uh, where can people go to uh, learn more about your ministry, and where can they go to pick up your books? Well, I'm at uh, coldcasechristianity.com. That'll always be the banner for everything we do here at uh, coldcasechristianity.com. Of course, the books are all available at all the booksellers, you know, Amazon, CBD, and Barnes and & Noble and all that. But you've got links to that at, at Cold Case. And I can tell you, at coldcase.com, at coldcasechristianity.com, my hope is that I provide something every day, three articles a week, a video a week, a podcast a week, that'll help you take another step if you're investigating this material. So my hope is that people will visit it, uh, we'll, put, we'll put it into play. All that stuff is downloadable as PDF files. Every single article is printable as a PDF file. They're savable as PDF files. Everything is there to kind of build your own library, uh, making the case in all these different categories. All right, uh, Jim, really appreciate you coming on. Love to have you back on the show. Maybe we can do cold case uh, next time. But uh, Yeah, Devin, say hello to me. Uh, appreciate all the... I, 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 love, I love when I get a chance to see you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Look forward to seeing you hopefully in October. Okay, bud. I'll see you then. God bless. All right, folks, join us next week. We will have uh, Dr. Stephen Meyer on from the Discovery Institute, as well as Casey Luskin. We'll be looking at the new book, Debating Darwin's Doubt, which is a response uh, to the critics of Darwin's Doubt. So be sure to join us for that. It'll be a good in-depth time of learning and discussing these issues. So thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Professor Samples, and thank you, uh, Jim, for coming on the show. Highly recommend their books, folks. Check out our Facebook page, Theology Matters with the Palouse, and we'll have links up to their books. And uh, until next time, God bless.